Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you so much, Ezra and Leah, for uh, helping us with the Advent candle lighting up here. That is so encouraging to hear. I specifically really liked what Ezra was saying about Jesus being a messenger to us. And as I, as I was thinking through that, it, when there's a messenger sent to us, a vital part of that message is our response to that message. Um, so I think a response is a vital part of any conversation. As somebody speaks to you, you then respond back to them. And uh, the passage that we're going to be in this morning, I think, covers responses to very important claims and very important questions. Everybody wants to hear a response. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys are active on Twitter, but anytime anything big happens in the world, what's expected from people is typically a response on Twitter. Their take, their words about what's happening. A uh, response is vitally important to questions asked and vitally important to claims made. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, open them today to John chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be reading through John chapter 7, verses 1 through 44. Uh, a bit, bit of a lengthy passage, but I know we can do it. I'll give you guys just a second to get there. But John 7, 1 through 44 starts, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judah because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judah, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to his brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go to the feast. I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him amongst the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man is learned when he has never studied? Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anybody wills to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, saying, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Sorry. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. 
I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they sought to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach them? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet, and others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ not to to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village that David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, yet no one laid hands on him. This is obviously quite a lengthy passage. So I want to take a closer look at it with you this morning, and we'll see that there are several key things that the text reveals to us about Jesus and his actions in this passage. Starting off in chapter 7, We start with Jesus living in Galilee. He's been there for a couple months following an altercation with the Pharisees. All the way back in John chapter 5, there was a dispute with Jesus in Jerusalem over the Sabbath that led to the Pharisees seeking to kill him. What we see here at the start of chapter 7 is Jesus lying low in Galilee, ministering in a smaller, more remote area for a few months because the Jews are seeking to kill him. But as the end of the harvest season approaches, the time comes for the Jewish Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths. Now, I know one of the most fun things that in the whole world is to examine ancient Jewish feasts, but uh, I think the context is really important. It it informs a lot of what Christ does in this passage. Uh, The Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, is an annual feast that comes at the end of the harvest season, usually late September or early October. And the harvest is a religious time. The Feast of Booths is a harvest feast that is meant as a spiritual reminder ordained by God in Deuteronomy 16 of God's provision for Israel. And observing this feast is commanded of all Israelite men. The Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long pilgrimage where Jewish men and their families would travel back to Jerusalem to where the temple was, and there they would live in homemade tents or shacks or booths for a week. This was done to remind them of their time living in the desert during the 40 years of wandering and how God provided for them during that time. During this time, they'd feast to remind them of God's provision. They'd gather at the temple to listen to daily readings of the Torah by temple priests. And in the days of Christ, there would be a daily ceremony involving water being poured over the altar. We'll get to that later. Now, in the days when the Roman Empire controlled Judah, Judah lived under the boot of an oppressive political system. During this time, they anxiously awaited God's provision of the promised Messiah. Most of them expected this promised Messiah to be a glorious rebel leader, somebody who would crush Rome and free them from the oppressive Roman rule, which obviously was not Jesus' plan, is not what Jesus came here to do. But this is what people expected 
of the Messiah. Most expected him to overthrow the Roman Empire, to reinstate the old Israelite monarchy like in the days of David and Solomon. Yet, that was not Jesus' plan. At this particular Feast of Booths, the annual celebration of God's provision, Israel expected the provision of the Messiah. As a devout, as a devout man, Jesus is a devout Jew. He wants to attend this feast. It is commanded of all Jewish men to observe. Yet Jesus is a marked man. He's living out in the sticks. It's unsafe for him to move openly in Jerusalem. And as he himself says, his time is not yet come. Yet as the feast draws near, his brothers are preparing to go to this feast. And they approach Jesus here. They say this in verse 3. His brothers approach him saying, Leave Galilee and go to Judah so your disciples there might see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secrets. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now pay attention to these words here because this might seem like good brotherly advice on the surface, but the very next verse informs us of what his brothers are actually saying to him. His bro- the very next verse says, For not even his own brothers believed him. And this indicates the tone that their brothers are saying this in. His brothers, rather than offering wise brotherly advice to Jesus, are actually here making a spiteful and mean joke at Jesus' expense. What they're essentially saying is, oh, if, you, if you're who they say you are, go to the feast. Go, show yourself. What are they going to do to you? After mocking Jesus, they leave for the feast. Obviously, if Jesus were to openly show himself there, his time has not yet come, remember, the Jews would descend upon him. His brothers are being mean. His brothers are making a very uncharacteristically mean and spiteful joke at Jesus' expense. Now, they leave for the feast, and at first it seems like Jesus isn't going to go. But as we see in verse 10, he does go, just a few days later and in secret. Now, what Jesus' actions at this feast does, because his attending this feast is vitally important, his actions at this feast accomplish several things. But the main point it accomplishes here is this, and that's going to lead us to our first main point, which is that Jesus' actions at this feast are to reveal his messianic identity. With the feast underway, John, author of the scripture, very quickly shows us a picture of what the feast's atmosphere is like. Jesus is very clearly a hot topic at this year's Feast of Tabernacles, and the people will not stop talking about him. Everybody expects Jesus to be there. So the people are whispering about him. The Pharisees are keeping an eye out for him, yet no one will speak openly about him for fear of the Jews. I know some of you out here work in uh, the education field, and I'm sure you all know this well, but when you you in the education field tell a group of teenagers not to talk about something, what does that do? They talk about it, but they learn how to be sneaky and not how to talk about it openly. But they still talk about it, and usually they talk about it even more. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are shutting down conversations about Jesus, which, ironically, the Lord uses this to further Jesus' message because the people are talking about him all the more in spite of what the Pharisees are doing. Now, Jesus arrives, and he appears in the temple at around the third or fourth day of the feast. He starts to even teach in the temple. And this doesn't make sense because Jesus is a marked man. Why would he appear in the temple? We've hit this earlier, but his time has not yet come. Jesus was not going to be taken by the Pharisees when he speaks in the temple, and his speaking in the temple is a huge revelation of his messianic identity. Back in the days before the exile, before the Jewish people lived in the area controlled by Rome, back when the Jewish people had control over their own area, there was a tradition of the Jews that every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish king 
the Davidic king, the king descended from King David, would go into the temple and he would read from the Torah. He would teach the people in the temple. Now, with no more Jewish kings, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this tradition is long since forgotten. But if you look at it in light of who Jesus is, this is a big deal. Jesus, as the Messiah, is a descendant of King David. Jesus teaches in the temple, I would say, as a sign of his messianic identity. He is a descendant of King David. He is the Messiah. He teaches in the temple. And as he teaches in the temple, several of the Jewish teachers and the Jewish lawyers gather around and they listen to him, marveling at his teaching, not because of his teaching, not because of the content that he's reading. No, they marvel in spite of what he's teaching. They are in wonder that Jesus can teach like them. He is not an educated man. He hasn't grown up in the temple. And he is not teaching like somebody who has studied for their whole lives. He's teaching like that, but he's not trained among them. So what we see here is the temple elites missing the point. They're not seeing why Jesus is teaching here. They're not seeing the content of it. All they see is, this guy's smart. This guy's smart like we are, but he hasn't been trained like us. They question Jesus on where he learned to speak like this. And here in verse 16, Jesus makes an interesting claim. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. As Jesus is claiming here, and he will claim again one chapter later in chapter 8, Jesus is speaking on the authority of God himself. There, teaching in the temple, like the Jewish kings of old, proclaiming the glory of the God who sent them, Jesus is claiming, I am the Messiah. I am the one sent from God. Because his teachings are proclaiming the glory of the God who sent him. Interestingly, after Jesus, the man of truth, who seeks to make God glorified through his work, after he says this, a group of men of falsehoods, the Pharisees, the temple elites, they stand there. They sit there, they look on, and Jesus' point is being made very clear to them. They're learned men, they would know this. And Jesus directly calls out their hypocrisy here, saying, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus is, of course, right. Murder is against the law of Moses. Go figure. The Pharisees are being hypocrites again, and in their zeal to kill Jesus for breaking the law, they themselves are breaking the very same law, and Jesus calls them on this. He calls them on this, and they respond back at him, accusing him of being demon-possessed, which this, I don't, looking at the other Gospels, this seems to be kind of the go-to rebuttal of the Pharisees whenever Jesus calls them out for being hypocrites. Uh, and it, it's a pretty bad defense. It's something along the lines of Jesus is saying, hey, you're trying to kill me. You're hypocrites. And the Pharisees, in their arrogance, are, react with what is essentially, nuh-uh, you have a demon. What, it's a terrible defense. It's a terrible defense. The Pharisees' attempts to kill Jesus are so well known at this point that the people are afraid to speak openly about Jesus. Everybody seems to know about this plot. They even say, is this not the man who they're seeking to kill? So the plot to kill Jesus is either an open truth or a terribly, terribly kept secret. And in response to this claim, oh, you must be demon-possessed, Jesus instead offers another example of their hypocrisy. They'd be willing to break the Sabbath themselves in order to, he to, in order to circumcise somebody to keep the law, 
Yet, when Jesus breaks the Sabbath to heal a man's entire body, they immediately seek to kill him. The same crime they're trying to have Jesus killed for is one that they themselves break. Jesus has made another good point here, and the, this makes the temple elite suspicious. It leads them to begin to question, oh, the, the Pharisees are letting Jesus teach openly. He's making good points. Does this mean Jesus really is who he claims to be? They haven't arrested him or killed him yet, and here he is speaking in the temple. Of course, these temple elites reason, that can't be right. Jesus is from Nazareth, and when the Messiah appears, he'll appear suddenly, and nobody will know where he comes from. This is false. Uh, Jesus is to come from Bethlehem, out of the region of Judah. The prophets say this, and the, the Jewish people, these temple elites, have their own traditions. They think that Jesus will appear suddenly and the Messiah will be a mysterious figure. And again, they completely miss the point. These temple elites have completely forgotten the prophets' predictions of where Messiah will come from. And they've replaced that key truth with their own empty traditions. And Jesus recognizes this. They know him, but they don't recognize who he is. And Jesus calls out the emptiness of their hearts. With Jesus' words, he sent me, he declares, and he declares openly that he is the Messiah. He makes a very pointed and direct reprimand to these Jewish temple elites, and at that the Pharisees have had enough, and they make a move to arrest him, sending the temple guard. Yet Jesus' time has not yet come. So he leaves, and nobody lays a hand on him. Amazingly, just walks out of the temple, nobody arrests him, nobody lays a hand on him because his, his time has not yet come, and he disappears, at least for a few days. But as John describes in verse 31, some who see this do believe in him. Through this interaction, a lot of the interactions that follow, we start to see some really key reactions to Jesus' message here, reflected in a few different people. So that's going to bring us to point number two. Jesus' claim that he is the Messiah demands a response. Jesus' claim demands a response. So we're going to take a look at a couple of the different responses that happen here, and we'll start right off the bat with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, in this example, react with malice and violence. This is how they react to Jesus. The Pharisees are actively trying to kill Jesus as early as verse 1. His supposed crime of healing on the Sabbath is such a terrible crime in the eyes of the Pharisees, they're seeking to have Jesus put to death. And throughout this whole passage, they debate and they resist him at every turn. And they attempt to have him arrested, as we've just examined. For evil men, like these Pharisees, these evil, wicked men, a claim like Jesus' is something to be either dismissed or attacked. We see the same attitude modeled today in the same kinds of wicked men who will harass, persecute, or even kill Christians for their beliefs out of a desire to make themselves great, kill the message, or to simply make their ideology or their own idols more well-known. There are wicked men in this world, men who resist, men who are malicious and violent, and men who seek to kill and to stomp out the message of the gospel. I think this response is easy to see today in terrorist groups in the Middle East, in religi religious jihad carried out against Christians. This is easy to see and easy to see in other people. It's very easy for us to think couldn't be us, we could never have that response. But the Pharisees were what, we would have what the Jewish people would have considered good men, lawyers, people who kept the law, yet they still react to Jesus' claim with malice and violence. 
This response may be the easiest to see in other people, hard to see in ourselves, but there are other responses among our culture that are a little bit more difficult to see today. That's where I want to hit the next one, and that's his brothers. Jesus' brothers, in verses 3 through 5, react with disrespect. Uh, We talked about this earlier, and it's easy to miss because on the surface, their words seem innocent enough, but tone is hard to communicate in Scripture. It's written words translated into one language to another and then finally to English. That's really, it's really rough, but um, it, it went through a lot of translation processes, and it was translated many times, so a lot of times tone is hard to communicate through Scripture. That's why the author here chooses to add a disclaimer right after his brother's words. The subordinate clause here that even his brothers did not believe in him communicates the sarcasm and the lowbrow, mean tone that his brothers are communicating to Jesus in. It shows their unbelief, and it shows their opinion of him. Now, I think this same attitude is vibrant and present in the wicked and sinful world we live in today. We see this attitude in people convinced of their own rightness, convinced that Christians are on the wrong side of history, convinced that they are in the right and those who have a genuine faith in God are in the wrong. This is the same attitude that people such as Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking would have. Sneering, spiteful, oh, these, these Christians are stupid, they're on the wrong side of history. And the same kinds of people who might have yelled, hey, take yourself off that cross as Jesus was being crucified. Many who disbelieve in Jesus react this way. Many of you probably know people who react this way. People who disrespect and spite Jesus because they don't believe. It's easy to spot, and it's easy for Christians to see this and think, couldn't be me. Yet, Christians often mirror similar attitudes. Maybe not quite as abrupt, not quite as direct, but I think if we examine our hearts, we can find the same attitude reflected in ourselves. Maybe when something doesn't go our way, or when God replies not yet to a prayer that we've prayed. It's going to bring us to our next reaction, the reaction of the temple elites. And the temple elites react with suspicion. Jesus is clearly a learned man. He's claiming here to speak on the authority of God. But as we examined earlier, as he claims this, they suspiciously question him. This is another reaction that's difficult to spot. But, I'm going to point this out here, it's also the first time in the narrative that there's a degree of openness to the gospel we start to see. They're skeptical. But we see in verse 31 that even out of this skepticism, some still believe. Some see the truth, some even go as far as to respond in faith. In our world today, these are the agnostics, the one in our lives who don't know the truth and and ask us questions that are hard for us to answer, but are also hard for them to answer. These are the people who want to know, who want to understand. Some still miss the point, but suspicion over arrogance is a step closer toward understanding the truth that can sometimes so directly elude others. Bring us to our next reaction, feast-goers. And the feast-goers here respond with curiosity in verses 40 through 43. Jesus has been doing great signs and wonders in the region, and all the people are talking about him. They're demonstrating curiosity. They see the signs, the wonders, the miracles, hear the parables. They see what Jesus is doing, and they hear the call to follow him. And we see in verses 40 through 43, we'll get there in a minute, that his living water proclamation stirs something in the people. Some of them say that Jesus is a good man. Some of them say, no, he's a prophet. Others say, no, this is the Christ. People are curious. 
I think we see this in people today too. People who are willing to make compromises, people who are willing to say, oh yeah, Jesus was a good man, he was a good teacher. Others who are willing to go as far as to say, Jesus, yeah, greatest man that ever lived. Yet, even this compromise, this degree of openness is not yet a full response of belief in Jesus. It's knowing things about Jesus. It's maybe understanding, yeah, he's a great man that did great things. But all the curiosity in the world isn't a replacement for proper and genuine belief. In verse 43, we read about a division that pops up between the people. And this is the root of that division. There is still a rift between the curious people and the true responses of true believers. And that's going to, out of all of these, out of all of these claims, there are people who are called out. There are people who are called out of their malice and violence toward Jesus, such as the Apostle Paul, who called out of that malice and violence, respond in genuine faith. There are those who react with disrespect toward Jesus, who respond to the call and can even come to have genuine faith. We can, even see, we can see this even more clearly in those who are suspicious of Jesus. People who are suspicious of Jesus are still able to come to know the truth and respond in genuine faith. And those who are curious are maybe closest to the truth, to realizing the truth of who Jesus is, his death on the cross, sacrificially for their sins. And out of all of these, and generally it follows a progression from hatred of Jesus to belief in Jesus, but out of all of these, there is a call and a response. And that's going to bring us to our last sub-point here, and that is believers who respond with belief. Out of all of these groups come a select few who hear Jesus' message and hearing Jesus' message, act out in belief. These are the ones who recognize the states of their hearts. Those who believe Jesus' message and respond to his claim by worshiping him, by venerating him as Messiah, as the risen Lord. These believers are set apart from the rest of the world. Remember, we talked about a rift that's forming between the true believers and others. There is a rift that forms between those who do not believe and those who believe, no matter how close to believing they are. These people's lives are a testament to the one who delivered them from their sins, set them free, and satisfies the inner longing of their souls, their deepest longing. But what's the tipping point? Did all these people learn this on their own? Did they come to just magically one day understand, this is my response, this is my response to belief? No. Rather, these people are invited by Jesus to freely join him. It's going to bring us back a little bit to the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, we talked earlier about a ceremony involving the priests and involving water. This is important. On every morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest would walk down to the Pool of Siloam. Now, this is the same pool where crippled and sick people would wait by the edge of the pool so that they could enter the pool and superstitiously receive healing from the angels who trouble the waters. Obviously, this is a superstition. There's nothing biblically that proves that this would actually happen. But this water is seen by many people in Jerusalem to be healing water. Now, what the high priest would do is he would go down to this pool with a golden pitcher. He'd fill it with water from the pool, and in a great parade, a great ceremony, um, tongue-in-cheek here, but... Uh, think the wooden shoe parade during a tulip festival. Um, No, not quite, not quite. Um, But in this great parade, singing, dancing, the high priest would carry this pitcher through the streets of Jerusalem in this noisy, loud, raucous parade. And they'd take this pitcher 
to the temple and pour it into a golden basin beside the altar. Now, this was seen as another example. It's a symbol. It's a reminder of God's provision of water for the nation of Israel. When they wandered the desert, thirsty and in need for years, the people complained against God, saying, you've brought us into the desert to die. Send us water. Now, there's more here. Moses does not respond rightly, but that's beside the point. Moses causes water, and God, through Moses, causes water to spring forth from a rock, and the people drink from this and are satisfied. The high priest pouring water over the altar is another symbol of God's provision. It is God's provision of nourishment, of water. It was a huge proceeding, a massive parade that happens through the streets of Jerusalem. But the final day of the feast, what Scripture calls the Great Day, is different. That last day, that great day of the feast, is the Sabbath. And naturally, we know how the Pharisees view the Sabbath. Uh, I'm, I don't know why, but they, wouldn't, they would not observe this parade, this tradition, this everyday tradition they would not do on the last day of the feast because it was the Sabbath. It's on this day, the time when the parade normally would have been, that Jesus stands up and makes the boldest claim that he possibly could, a claim that demands a response. Verse 37 reads, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Until that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now we're examining several different responses. And now that we've looked at those responses, let's look deeper at what Jesus calls to on that last great day of the feast. It's going to lead us to our last main point here. Jesus invites spiritually thirsty people to respond freely. It's our last main point. Jesus invites spiritually thirsty people to respond freely. Living water is what Jesus offers here. It's the same thing, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, that he offers the Samaritan woman at the well just a few chapters ago in John 4. And this living water is the most significant part of this passage. Starting out, this living water invitation is an open invitation from Jesus to anyone who hears it. Specifically, Jesus says, to anyone who thirsts. Now, church, I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to respond. It's a rhetorical question. What is the thirstiest that you have ever been? For me, that thirstiest time that I'd ever had was two summers ago. Uh, for those of you who know me, I've spent a lot of time in my life working at summer camps. Uh, a lot of times it's outdoor summer camps. And this particular summer two years ago, I was counseling a three-week-long discipleship training program focused in outdoor wilderness activities called Leadership Lab. And during this Leadership Lab, one of our activities that we would do is we would take our kids on a two-day backpacking trip on the Great Northern Trail in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. It's a long, long trail. Uh, and it would take, I, I looked it up, it'd take almost four months to hike the entire thing. But we were just doing a two-day section of it. Yet, it was a good trail. It was a trail that we knew well, that we had done many times before. And it was, this, this section of the North Country Trail is extremely difficult. It is uphill the entire way there, up the side of a mountain where we would camp out on a cliff face. Now, for context, I had been sick a few days before we did this trip, and I was actively still a little bit cruddy in my lungs and 
in my body as we started out on the trip. But I, I was also in college at the time. Uh, I figured the best way to fight the sickness was to chug a monster and keep going. Uh, for those of you still in college, don't do that. Um, see, the kicker here is that caffeine actually dehydrates you. If you didn't already know that, don't, don't drink monster before a hike. Now, I, I chugged a monster right before we left, and for the first mile of this trip, we, we parked our vans at the bottom of the mountain and started up. For the first mile, it was awesome. I was so energetic, I'd completely forgotten about the fatigue that had wrapped me up, and I, I, was, I was chugging along, I was hiking with our group. And then as we neared probably the, the, the first one-third of our hike was done, I realized I'd left one of my two water bottles in the car, and I drank half of mine already. So I've got about 16, 17 ounces of water left for probably another three or four miles worth of uphill hiking. It was a bright, sunny, 93-degree day, uh, so hot that a haze was hanging in the air, uh, not a cloud in the sky, which is awesome until you're hiking in it. Um, but as we moved on, it started, the air started to get thick. When, when it's that hot and that humid outside, the air starts to feel thick as you're breathing it. And all I had to get up this mountain, again, was 16, 17 ounces of water. Not much. And as I slowly sipped the rest of that water to nourish the, what little thirst I had, the deeper, harder to deal with thirst started to settle in. Church, it was the thirstiest I have ever been in my life. Over the next two hours, my mouth went chalk dry. My skin stretched out, felt like leather. And during our water break, I pushed myself to a patch of mossy rocks, laid back down on it, and just kind of gasped for breath, like unable, to even, too tired to even move. I needed water more than anything else. Nothing else mattered to me in that moment, so great was my thirst. Luckily, I had, I had a dedicated team with me. Uh, my buddy Micah was leading the pack, and my buddy Micah was carrying our group's water supply that we were going to cook with that night. Now, Micah, Micah saw the thirst that I had. He saw how desperately I needed that water, and Micah came to save me with a bottle of 70-degree backpack well water. We're talking the kind of water that tastes like iron. You get a little aftertaste of eggs in it from the sulfur in the well. 70-degree hot water. And church, it was the most nourishing, the deepest quenching of thirst I could have had. All I needed in that moment was that water, bad as that water might have been, to satisfy and quench that thirst. It was the best thing I had ever tasted in my life, and to this day, I remember how sweet that terrible water tasted. It was exactly what I needed, and it brought me such immense and such needed relief to my body. Now, we've just talked about in Scripture, Jesus says to anyone who thirsts, come freely and drink. And that is the kind of longing that Jesus is talking about. The human soul has a thirst, John Piper says in a sermon about this same passage. Not a physical thirst, clearly. Our spirit does not get physically thirsty. Our body gets physically thirsty. But inside our body lives our spirit. And the soul, deprived of its connection to Jesus Christ, grows bitter, dries up, and longs for the quenching power of Jesus Christ. Our souls were made to live on Jesus like our bodies were made to live on water. We have within us a soul that needs sustenance just as much as our bodies do, and we must drink, drink from Jesus' presence, drink from Scripture, sustain our soul with him. It's why here in verse 37, Jesus says, let them come to me and drink. This is an open invitation 
to come and freely drink. This, this is another thing that frustrates me about today's society. Have any of you ever been to a, a restaurant, maybe a, a restaurant in town or a restaurant on the side of the road? One of the restaurants where they don't serve tap water, where they want you to buy a bottle of water, oh, it annoys me to no end because all I want is to drink. I don't want to pay for the water that I'm going to drink when I can just go to the faucet and fill up a cup with tap water to drink. I don't want to pay for a bottle. I, I don't, specifically, I don't, want to, I don't want to pay for a $4 bottle of Aquafina water. It's a racket, and it's something that you fall victim to. If you buy bottled water from a restaurant, that's predatory. Don't do it. It's not worth it. But what Jesus is doing here is he's freely offering water to drink. And not just regular water for our bodies, but living water for our souls. Jesus is telling us, come and drink. Feed yourself on my presence. And Jesus promises to satisfy those thirsty souls in him forever. All the talk of living water is a metaphor, and an immense metaphor. Jesus is doing nothing less than calling on a people with thirsty souls to believe in him. Jesus is the Christ, the promised Son of God who freely offers relief from our sins and satisfies us in perfect fellowship with himself. When you come to him, you get him. So, after all this talk of invitations, responses, of living water, let's draw this to a conclusion. Jesus Christ is freely offering living water to you, to you, you personally, your soul, if you're hearing this this morning, church, needs Jesus as intensely as any thirsty person has ever needed water. So what's your response? We've talked about some other responses to Jesus' claim for living water. What is your response? And that's going to bring us to our last point. Our last point here, our concluding point says, what is blank's response? And in that spot, church, I want you to write your own name. I want you to let that be a reminder to you. Think through, what is my response to Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the dispenser of living water for our souls? Maybe you've before responded with curiosity or suspicion. Maybe you've even been one of those angry, malicious, or spiteful people who have been called to live a new life, remade and cleansed in the light of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been curious for a long time and you're here this morning wondering, what, what is this to me? What is Jesus to me? Well, church, Jesus is living water. Jesus is the quenching to a thirsty soul that you yourself need. Do you believe that Jesus Christ can satisfy the deepest needs of your soul? If the answer is yes, then respond. Believe in him and follow him because only he can give you the relief that you need. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for you. And what we need, Lord Jesus, is you. We need you to cleanse us, to clean us, and we need you, Lord, to quench the thirst that our souls have for you. Lord, call us to something greater. Call us to respond to your name, to your claim in faith, Lord. Reveal yourselves to us as you've revealed yourselves to all those who came before us. Lord, you are worth believing in and you are worth following in. And I pray that people would see that this morning. You are a good God 
and we are so thankful for you this Advent season. In your name we pray. Amen.